When I was in third grade, um, we had uh, we had a poster contest for Earth Day. So Earth Day comes around, you got to do something about you know conservation, and uh, all the winners from every class get to go to a pizza party. And so you know when you're in third grade, a pizza party is like a million dollars. So I wanted to win. I wanted to go to the pizza party. So I come home, I tell my mom all about it. Uh, I wanted to draw Captain Planet. Anybody know Captain Planet? Anybody? Raise your hand. Just help me out. Good. Yeah, I put a picture of Captain Planet up here just for kicks, all right? Um, so Captain Planet, you know, the power is yours. I loved Captain Planet. Uh, but my mom was like, no, I don't think you'll win with Captain Planet. And so she came up with another idea, uh, did the whole poster, and I won. I won. Pizza party, you know, Mr. Earth right here. And, uh, and so then I kind of forgot about it. Three weeks later, we got a call, and they said that I had won uh, at the uh, county. So, like, the county also took all the winners from the schools, and I won that too, 150 bucks. 150 bucks in a savings bond. And so I get there, and, and they ask me, hey, how did you, uh, you know, what was your inspiration? Like a third grader, you know, knows that. But they're like, what was your inspiration? And then the fear hits me because the truth is I didn't do my poster. Uh, I had the mom who was very overactive, and, uh, and to this day she will uh, argue that she did not do the poster, but I know how many cartoons I watched and snacks I ate while the poster was being made, and she kind of got caught up in helping me, and pretty soon it was done, and I hadn't actually done anything. And so uh, I started getting pretty worried about it because after the county, it went to the state. And then the state called, and I won the state, or my mom won the state poster contest, $1,500 savings bond. Yeah. And uh, I didn't come clean. You know, I wasn't a preacher yet, so I just let it, I let it sit. But as we're getting ready to go to the state, I'm so afraid that someone is going to ask me, like, to draw Russia or something, you know, because it's like my poster was the world, you know, and I had all the stuff on there, and, and I was, like, deathly afraid they were going to ask me questions. They did not ask me any questions. I also have no idea where that $1,500 savings bond went, so don't ask me for any money. Have you ever, this was definitely a time uh, when you just got a heck of a lot more than you bargained for. I signed up for a pizza party. I was okay bending the rules to get that. I got a lot more than that. I remember when I was about five years old, I got really sick. I went to the hospital, and I discovered cable for the first time. They had cable in the hospital. And uh, 30 channels. Uh, it, was, it felt like a million. Cartoons all day. I had no idea cartoons existed outside of Saturday morning. I got way more than I bargained for. I couldn't have cared less about being sick. We had cable. That was super exciting. Low expectations for the hospital. Blew them out of the water. I loved it. Also had times when I got way less than I expected. You've gotten way less than you expected because you have seen a McDonald's commercial and then you've eaten a McDonald's burger, right? And you got way less than you expected. You, got, you saw a beautiful burger and then you had uh, your lettuce in this corner. All your mayonnaise in this corner, you know, like how they do it in there. And, uh, yeah, that's kind of happened. Uh, you know the time when I got way less than I expected? Uh, when I first moved here, somebody got a, um, a, uh, a king cake from, from Randazzo's. It was delicious. 
I we don't have good king cake like that in Mississippi. Just so you know, like that's not a there's not king cake is dry and it's it's not as good. So uh, I came here. It was it was awesome. And so then, like a couple weeks later, somebody says, "I'm bringing king cake," and and they show up with a McKenzie's king cake. You know, I mean, it's like a loaf of bread. It's not king cake at all. And it was terrible, and it was the biggest letdown. After I first had delicious king cake, then somebody shows up with McKenzie's, and I knew from then on out all king cakes are not created the same. But got a whole lot less than I expected. Here's what what I know for sure about us. Church-wide, on an individual level, we don't expect that much from God. We don't expect that much. We don't expect to get more than we bargained for, and we don't expect him to do a lot of great things. Here's what I know. Uh, here's how I know, you know if, if you're on board with this, if that's you, if you kind of fall into that. If a lot of your prayers, if when you, when you, you know, maybe you do it often and maybe you don't do it that often, but when you come before God in prayer, if your prayer kind of, kind of begins with a, all I need is, all I want is, this is all I'm looking for. And that's sort of the way you approach God is, God, I'm just not asking for that much. It's just these couple little things that I need. Because in reality, you have low confidence that he'll do something really big. Or that he'll really fix something that's really broken. Or there's some relationship or family mess that's been so nasty, and you don't really have the confidence that God will fix it. You just ask for a little Band-Aid for it. And we come before God, and we don't ask for that much because we have low expectations for what he'll do. And while we're over here with low expectations, let me tell you what God's over here doing. God's over here and he's parting oceans and people are walking through the middle. And he's turning slaves into princes and he's turning prisoners into world leaders. And he's growing the church by like a thousand people at a time, all the way back to the first church, all the way now to churches around the world. And he's doing huge, huge things. God speaks and things come into creation. You think about all that it takes to live and and be alive and God just breathes and that stuff happens. And we're expecting very little from God and meanwhile he's doing huge, huge things. And it's a real slap in the face to God to, to expect so little from him when we see all that he can do. Acts chapter 2 verse 40, you get a little glimpse of this big work that God wants to do. Here's what I want to tell you before we even jump into Acts chapter 2. In our church and in our lives, if we want God to do great things, it starts with expecting some great things. In our church, in your life, if you want God to do something great, it starts with expectation. And I know what you're thinking, you know, I can expect my kids to put the dishes in the sink after dinner all day long, and uh, or you know, my wife can expect me to remember to take out the garbage. Uh, you know, you can expect things all day long, um, but that expectation doesn't work near as good as instilling uh, instilling ungodly fear in someone to do it, right? So I can expect Molly to to pick her plate up and put it in the sink, but if I say pick your plate up and put it in the sink, then she'll probably do it. <laughs> And that tends to work a lot better than expecting. But I think sometimes we have a, a wrong idea about what it means to expect. I think a godly expectation is if I'm expecting her to do something, I'm reminding her to do it, and then I'm going to the sink, and I'm starting the water, and I'm getting ready to wash the dishes. You know, like, like an expectation is where there's some action on my part. 
I started to tell a story about kids doing dishes, but I, I didn't want you to check out like it was all unrealistic. But that's a godly expectation, is not only do we expect something to happen, but we act like it's going to happen. And we get moving and get some action behind it. In Acts chapter 2, what happened right before this part that we'll read in Acts chapter 2 is this thing called Pentecost. Pentecost was a wild scene. If you take our church service, you compare it to the first church service in Pentecost, I mean, this looks nothing like it. Like, we're so chill, and every now and then, you know, I, I get the nerve to, like, raise my hands to here. You know, if you're sitting right behind me, you see it. And, and I'm really enthusiastic. But the first church meeting in Acts, let me tell you some of the things that the passage says. This first church meeting, Acts chapter 2, tongues of fire came down. That's what it says. Do I know exactly what that means? No, but it doesn't sound like what I usually see. Tongues of fire came down, right? Uh, violent wind blew. And this incredible miracle happens where, uh, where people are like, if, if I'm preaching in English, but you only understand Spanish, all of a sudden you can understand, you understand my preaching in your own language. And it's happening all throughout, and people are preaching, and people are understanding in their own language. And so there's like these miracles happening, and there's these crazy things happening all around people. And then right after that, Peter stands up to preach. And mind you, just a few weeks before, Peter stands up. He's preaching in front of thousands of people. And just a few weeks before, Peter denied Jesus three times. You remember that? So so a few weeks before, Peter is, is afraid to... to afraid to own his faith in front of one person or two people. And he runs from it, and he does it over and over. And a few weeks later, the Holy Spirit comes, and now he's preaching in front of thousands of people. And that's what the gospel does. And that's the kind of power that comes when, when, when you believe in Jesus and when you begin to follow him, right? It changes everything about who you are. And that's what you see in Peter in Acts chapter 2. And we pick up in Acts chapter 2, verse 40. Acts chapter 2, verse 40. I want you to see this. It's crazy. Um, it's my biggest dream and my biggest uh, fear as well. Biggest nightmare too. Acts chapter 2, verse 40. It says, With many other words he warned them. This is Peter. He's preaching. And he pleaded with them. He told everybody, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. That's the dream of a church planner is to grow by 3,000 in one day. And that's the ultimate fear of a church planner is to grow by like even 50 in one day. I mean, that would just, that would, I wouldn't know what to do. 3,000 people that day joined the church. I think it's pretty crazy. You know, Peter, it's, it's like the New Testament authors stand up. And sometimes I talk about baptism. And I don't know, I remember when I was a kid, they invite you to come and get baptized, you know, and they're sharing. And you're just clinging onto the pew and you got like your nail marks dug in because I'm not going down front, you know. And it's like it's such a big deal. And, 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 and here in the New Testament, they're just like, oh, you're a Christian? You should go ahead and get baptized. And then thousands of people do. <laughs> and it's not even a big deal. Uh, it, it, it's a big deal in the life of your faith, but it's, it's never presented as like a, something that, that you've got to work yourself up for. Thousands of people get baptized that day. And then in verse 42, and then this is what they begin to do after that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. And all the believers were together and they had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day, 
every day? What if we did church every day? Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And get this, the last verse. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And so their church grows by thousands, and then it grows by a few more every day. And, and, and if I think you can pull something big from this passage, and, and, and at the fear of being oversimplistic, I think it would be that God does incredibly big things. And he is not in the business of, of just like, just, you know, little things that, that, are, that are not really that significant. God does big things. You see a little bit of uh, this up here. This is, um, I'm not trying to raise $1.7 million, just so you know. Um, the statewide missions goal this year is $1.7 million, and the slogan is Think Big. And I, and it's, but the idea, I think, is it's not, hey, let's raise a fortune because we want to, you know, put it in our bank account. The idea is, for one, what you give to Georgia Barnett, like a, they don't take any of that for administrative fees. So 100% of it goes right out into missions. And so the idea is, man, God wants to do Georgia Barnett as a missions offering just for our state. It doesn't go anywhere else, stays all in our state. And the idea is that um, God wants to do big, big things right here in our state, right here in our place. And so we're going to ask him to do something really big. And I think the text proves that God is in the business of doing some big things. Uh, 3,000 people come to faith in Christ in one day, and then a few more come to faith in Christ every day in this one city, in this one place. That's thousands of people per year. I mean, this city, some people estimate that Jerusalem may have had around, there are estimates all over, but some people estimate it had around 100,000 that actually lived in the city. And, And how about thousands of people every year coming to faith in Christ? And here I am, seeing all these huge things that God does. And sometimes me on a personal level, I'm saying, you know, God, if we could just get 200 more dollars a month, that would be great. That would be great. That's what we need. Then we can cover all our bills. You know, last week, and, and I'm just, just be transparent with you, uh, you know, we got $40 in offering. It costs us $150 a week to be here. And that's like the cheapest you can do church ever. And, uh, and, and I'm like, God, just a little bit more, you know? And, and then way outside of that, I'm like, God, could we just get 10 extra people? Because sometimes if the Melanchons have to miss, I can't even preach to the right side, you know? Or, or if a few people, you know, over here have to miss, you know, with the exception of the sound booth, you know, like I got, you know, or sometimes I got nobody in the middle, you know? And I'm like, God, can we just get 10 more to fill in some of the gaps? And I'm asking God for these real little things. And sometimes I believe that God is just looking down saying, I'd love for you to call me when you're ready to do something big. Because I want to do something big. And it's not that I don't believe that God is working in our lives, in this church, in neighboring churches, and in our lives when we're not 100% faithful. I think he absolutely does. But I think he's got plans to do things much bigger than we expect. How about this in this church? It says, no one was ever in need. Can you imagine that? No one was ever in need. Can you imagine a place where no one is ever in need? Not because some people are carrying all the load and some people are doing nothing and the people that carry the load are are sort of giving to the other people. No, it says they were all sincere. So it's like everybody's working hard. Everybody's pulling their weight. Everybody's doing well. but, But even in that place, there's no poverty. Nobody does without. Uh, after Katrina, 
literally, hundreds of millions of dollars were spent, not on infrastructure. They spent way more than that on infrastructure. But hundreds of millions of dollars were spent in reducing poverty. Hundreds of millions over the past 10 years. Um, federal sources, state sources, local philanthropy. Uh, do you want to guess over the 10 years from when Katrina happened to 10 years after that, how much poverty was reduced as a result of those hundreds of millions spent? Zero. Zero. We didn't reduce poverty at all. And, and, and actually, the, the big win that we had is that it didn't get worse for the first time since like the 60s or something. So just zero change in the poverty level. And, and God says, hey, you know what? I'm going to get rid of poverty in this place. Boom, 100%. It's all gone. No problem for him. Tons of people, tons of people doing without. And, and God says, I'm going to totally get rid of that. And when we expect God to do something great, he's got so much more power and so much more ability than we do. He does big things. And the question that I ask sometimes, I don't know if you're asking is in my own life, is why does God seem to be doing some great things in the lives of other people and not so much where I am? And sometimes I think it's a few things. One, I think sometimes it's I just don't see God doing what he's doing. You know, my eyes aren't open to say, God, I can see you working there. Sometimes I think it's just the will of God. You know, he says, I'm going to do this and this time and that and that time. But much more often than that, uh, you know, there's some promises in Scripture. Here's some promises. Uh, scripture says that God gives strength to the weak. And so I, if I don't have strength in times that I'm weak, that's a promise from God, and it's something that I haven't trusted in. And that's why I'm not getting that. Uh, scripture says when, when God followers walk through fire, they will not be burned. And it means that no lasting harm comes to me from things that happened around me. And if I'm not getting that, it's because I'm not expecting that and I'm not walking towards that. Uh, scripture says that the heart, this is a church, church-wide, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. It says, man, you know, if your church isn't growing, it's not because there are people out there that don't want to be in here. You know, there are other problems happening there. God desires to do something great in your life and in the life of the church. And that is the absolute truth. The difference between where you see big things happening and where you see little things happening is the expectation and the working of people. And when we begin, even in our own lives, to expect God to do great things and solve big problems, and we live like we expected and we plan for Him to do great things, then He begins to do the great things. I'll give you two examples of, of how I believe it works. One, one church-wide, all right? The Korean church population... Uh, prior to 1975. Korean church population, really, really small. And this small group of, of Korean believers in South Korea, they decided that they were going to be really obedient and do something really big. And so in 1975, in this entire country, this group of Christians got together, and in 19, actually 1974, they sent out 24 missionaries. And they said, we never sent missionaries before. We're going to send 24 missionaries. And it wasn't one church, right? It's the whole country. Right, all the Christians in this country, as many as they could gather, got together, pulled their funds, sent 24 missionaries. And they began to, and that began to grow. And then over the course of the next 40 years, they sent over 27,000 missionaries. That's, and they got up to, you know, as of recently, they're sending 1,000 missionaries a year. And from 24 in 1974 to thousands now. And you think, well, that's a long span of time. You know what's happened to the number of U.S. missionaries over the past 40 years? It goes down every year. Right? It goes down a little bit more every year. 
at least in terms of population growth. We're not near keeping up with that. But, man, these Koreans are sending people to over 170 countries over the last 40 years. At one time, there were 50,000 Korean churches had been planted in a, in a uh, country with 50 million people. So get that number. 50,000 churches, 50 million people. Compare that with the U.S. Just in one convention, the Southern Baptist Convention, this is not all churches, but just in the Southern Baptist Convention, there were 47,000 churches, so just you know a few less, 3,000 less churches. But we have a population of 373 million. And so, man, from a, a place with no gospel presence, almost no churches, 40 years later, they, 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 they saturated the whole country with churches and gospel presence. And, and they were turning out 8,000 seminary graduates a year where we're graduating seminary and wanted to go preach somewhere. And they were like, man, we, we don't have enough churches for all the people. Like, we've really saturated culture. And so what did they do? So they said, well, I guess we're going to have to start sending more people overseas. And so they, they went overseas. And, and now you got Korean missionaries in the United States. you got missionaries. you got lots of missionaries went to China. Lots of missionaries went to, uh, went to Russia. And when they, when they had reached the place where they were, they started going other places. How did they do all that? Here's what they started to do. People started opening up their homes for, for church services. Uh, real estate in Korea, especially in Seoul, is some of the most expensive real estate in the world. Churches couldn't purchase land. It's not like they could just build a building and that kind of thing. So people got together and said, well, we'll just do it in our homes. And so every, you know, every Friday night, they'd set everything up as much as they can. Some people in, in 400-square-foot apartments would have like uh, 25, 30 people. That's like a two-car garage. They're packing that thing out. And they got people in the bathroom and in the bedroom, you know, and then somebody's in there preaching and they're doing church because that's the way that they can do it. People are opening up their church, opening up their homes, they're having church. Here's another thing they do. They started a tradition where um, at 5 a.m. Uh, they wake up and they gather together for prayer. And every day, and, and some people, and my understanding is some people go every day, 5 a.m. before work every day. Some people just go a few days a week. But 5 a.m. they're going and they're praying for an hour. Because they expected God to do something big, and Christians all over the country have been gathering for the last 40, 50 years at 5 a.m. just to pray. Here's another thing that they began to do. It became a regular tradition to, and, and, and so a lot of people get about two weeks of vacation a year. They use one week of vacation to do a mission trip, one week to do something else. And everybody decided that they were going to use some vacation time to do mission trips. And then everybody in what they call their summer vacations, most people take a vacation. It's sort of like a system-wide thing. And when people would take their summer vacations, that's what they're doing. They're going on mission trips. And collectively, the whole church said, we're going to begin to expect God to do great things, and we're going to get walking and get moving and get a part of it. And then he did. They expected God to do something great. They went to work, and he did it. And I think that's the idea that you see in Scripture. That's the same thing that the early church did. Another thing, personal lives, second example. In Norfolk, Virginia, uh, about there's an 11-year-old girl. This happened about 15 years ago. There's an 11-year-old girl, her name was Ashley Stewart. She was at her mom's funeral, and her mom had died of cancer. Uh, her dad was really abusive. Uh, she tells in the story, as she talks about her childhood, she says that um, you know, one of the things that was so troubling about it was her, her mom, even, even through cancer and even up until the point at which she died, her dad was abusive, and he never relented. Her mom never got to have any peace all the way through the end, even suffering with cancer, who's abusive to her and abusive to the children. 
and she just talks about feeling anguish that her mom had to go that way. So uh, the day that her mom died, you know, it was in the morning, in the afternoon, her older sister had finally, she'd had enough, and so uh, her dad was at it again that afternoon, and he was uh, being abusive, and then so the older the older sister ran out of the house and for the first time ever told somebody outside of their family and, and, and started telling people what their dad was doing. And, uh, and within weeks, they took only the older daughter out of the house and, uh, and the dad moved his mistress in. And, uh, and so what happened was Ashley, uh, the mistress cut off ties with the whole family, wouldn't let, the, wouldn't let Ashley talk to any of her family, especially not her sister. And, and after a few months, they moved. And so the elder daughter stayed in Virginia. The rest of the family moved to Florida, and they totally cut ties with the rest of the family. And so she was 11, so until she can move out at 18, um, she didn't get to talk to her sister at all, no contact whatsoever. And for nine years, she didn't see her sister or talk to her. She finally managed to track her down, and she was about 20, track down her sister. Uh, her sister moved. Her sister had two kids. She moved down to, to live with Ashley. And, uh, and, and shortly after she moved down, their jobs got tight, so they were still working and they weren't making as much money. And the, whole, the four of them became homeless, the two children and the, and the two sisters. So they lived in transitional housing and, and really struggling through this time. Ashley tells how she finally began to realize that, that God had a bigger plan for the four of them. And God had a bigger plan for all the people in this transitional housing than just to struggle and to suffer in, in that kind of way. So she, got a, she had one job. She got a second job with an organization called Crew. It's this Christian ministry organization. So she was holding down two jobs. She uh, went to college, started working on a degree in uh, social work from South Florida. And, uh, and as of, that was a few years ago, and as of uh, last year, I think this year she graduated, 2018, she finished her master's degree in social work. They're not homeless anymore. And, uh, and they're, they're in the beginning stages, and very soon this, uh, this transitional home for aged-out foster youth is going to open in Tampa. And, and what I think is, is so incredible is in the midst of the ugliest of the ugly, where she's, you would think that she suffered enough. I mean, dad, abusive mom dies, and then here she finds herself in her early 20s, and now she's homeless, and, and the kids don't have enough to eat. And, and man, if, if life is, you know, if life has turned against you, you know, she's one that's going to believe that. But she believes that God's going to do something better. And so she acts like God has a plan, and she gets moving. And I think that's so the, that's the big difference between what we often do is I say, God, I know that you can do great things, but I'm not really walking in that direction. And I'm not acting like you're going to do something, and I'm not moving in a way that opens the doors for you to begin to work. And, um, but yet here she is. If you know how hard it is, I deal with students in poverty all the time, so I sort of know all these numbers. The number of students that, that uh, grow up in poverty and escape poverty, it's almost no one. I mean, it is incredibly hard to escape poverty. If you add on top of that people that have been abused, uh, the numbers are almost 0%. I mean, it, almost no one picks themselves up out of poverty when they've grown up in poverty and been subject to physical and verbal abuse for an extended period of time. I mean, I think you can say it's a great, it's a work of God. Nearly a miracle. Everything is stacked against her. But she expects God to do something great, and she starts moving in that direction, and then he does. 
William Carey said it this way. William Carey, I'm the father of modern missions. He was a missionary when there weren't hardly any missionaries. Um, William Carey said this. He said, expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. And I think that sums up what you're seeing here, especially in this passage in Acts chapter 2. Expect God to do some great things and then begin to attempt to do things. And then begin to get moving. And maybe it's in your personal life, you're, you're not expecting God to do much. And, and maybe, you're, maybe your personal life's filled with conflict or strife, and I don't know what it is. Maybe you've got some uncertainty at work. Man, I remember a few years ago when, you know, didn't know exactly, you know, we were going job to job, you know, in construction, and didn't know, you know, where money was going to come from, and then that was filled with stress. Maybe you're unsure about your future in some other kind of way. I remember trying to pick a major in college. I mean, would have thought it was a way bigger decision. I'm so, you know, I didn't know what I was going to do. Like, you know, every decision I made then was going to carry me forever. Man, just all kinds of uncertainty. And, and, and whatever you, whatever that is, man, very clearly you see that when you approach God and you begin to pray boldly, expecting God to do some work, and you pray for him to change your situation, and you start walking towards the change you want to see, God never fails. And he's always good to do something great. And then I think about the church. I don't know if you know this, but you're a priest. Did you know that? Raise your hand if you already knew that. Um, The Bible calls us a priesthood of believers. So contrary to the idea of one person who's a priest who's, who's, you know, they're totally in charge and they got it all together, the Bible calls us all a priesthood of believers. And so that means the, the future and success of the church rests on everyone who calls themselves a believer who comes to the church. And in the life of the church, you may not be expecting God to do much. Maybe you're not thinking much about it at all. But man, God wants to do some great things through the life of the church, and it starts with what you'll commit to do. And he wants to see church growth, and he wants to see lives changed, and he wants people stepping into leadership, and he wants to see, I even think about on a personal level, he wants to see my, my budget prioritized, and he wants to see me giving more. So many things that God wants me to begin to do and you to begin to do because we're all a priesthood of believers and we're all leading this church. And in as much as your personal life depends on you praying boldly for things to happen and you getting moving, the future of the church depends on you praying boldly and getting moving. And your obligation to furthering the church and furthering the gospel is equal to your obligation to get your own house in order. Same for me. I just love seeing God do big things when we begin to walk towards Him. So I'll I'll ask one more time. I'll tell you one more time. What should you be expecting God to do? So just, just consider that for a minute. What should you be expecting God to do? And what is it in your life that you're like, I feel like this is not a God thing that God wants for me. What should you be expecting God to do? And as you process that and you pray for that, what should you be doing? What should you be doing? What has he called you to do to begin to solve the problem? As Robbie comes and sings in a minute, man, I just want you to weigh on that for a minute. Because absolutely, God, you should be expecting God to do something. And you and I should be walking towards what we're expecting him to do. Expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. Let me pray.